Welcome to A Bigger Life, where you can break through the distractions, stop, listen, and speak to God in prayer. I'm Dave Cover. I want to help you use the Bible as your conversation with God so you can live a bigger life. This is the third part of a three-part thing I'm doing on God proclaiming his name to Moses in Exodus. It's important for us to realize in the timeline of salvation history, we might call it, in that timeline, God revealing his name to Moses is the beginning of written revelation because Moses is the first author of the Bible. And so that's in a timeline of things when God first reveals himself to Moses and Moses begins to write scripture. So God revealing his name is the beginning of God revealing himself. The word God is a title. It's not a name, but God has a name. The word God is not even the most used word for God in the Bible. The most often used word for God is actually God's name, Yahweh. That's probably the best way to pronounce it. We don't know for sure because ancient Hebrew was written in only consonants, not vowels. And so we only have the consonants, and most Old Testament scholars put it together and for various reasons because of poetry and the way things sounded, would say it's Yahweh. And one of the things is like when we say that word hallelujah, that's an ancient Hebrew word that meant praise be Yahweh. That's the Yah part of hallelujah. So we, if you want to go back a couple episodes to hear all about God's name, Yahweh, that's what I would do if you missed it, and especially the show notes. I have there details in the show notes that you can look at. But here's the thing. I'm convinced that we're missing something big about God when we miss God's name, when we don't understand the importance of God's name, when God's name doesn't come to our mind when we think about God. Remember what A.W. Tozer said in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. This is it. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How you answer that question, who is God, will absolutely define you, and it will determine your life. And we can't go by our own intuition because our own intuition about God is absolutely broken. We need God to reveal to us who he is. And one of the first things God reveals to us about who he is is when he gives Moses his name. In Exodus 3, 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh. It says in our English Bible, the Lord, I explain why it says that, but God actually said, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Yahweh is an ancient Hebrew word for he is. It's the third person of I am. And so God's name is he is. We might think of it as he is the I am. God says, this is my name forever. Tell the Israelites, I am sent you. This is my name, Yahweh, my name forever that you shall call me. 
No, I just want you to understand I'm not trying to just get theologically deep here as if some Bible scholar wants to talk about what he knows about the Bible. What I'm trying to do is talk about something that for me has been life-changing personally, and I really want you to get it. So I want to look today again at that verse in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, when Moses says to God, show me your glory. So it says, then Moses said, show me your glory. And Yahweh said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So basically, here's what God says. You want to see my glory, but you can't in your sinfulness. It would kill you. It would incinerate you. But I will give you the next best thing. I will proclaim my name. He is in your presence. This is significant because God's name is the the highest glory revealed that we can handle without being destroyed. Then comes the most complete description of God's character in the entire Bible, in the sense that all later scripture passages frequently refer to these verses. It's the most quoted verses in the rest of the Bible. It's Exodus 34, 5 says, Then the Lord, then Yahweh, came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh. Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, we've ignored the rest of that because it's a weird part about punishment, but I'm going to read it again today and talk about it. Then it goes on, God says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Then it says in verse 8, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. So God revealing his name and revealing the character that's part of his name is what caused Moses to be overwhelmed and he bowed down to the ground at once and worshiped. And God says part of his name is that he's absolutely serious about punishing the guilty. If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, that the witness of the apostles is trustworthy, then you should also remember that Jesus took the Old Testament scriptures very seriously, particularly these very accounts here in Exodus where God is speaking to Moses. Jesus saw these as the word of God, and he quoted them seriously. Jesus quotes them a lot. And so we should understand here, when God became human, he talked about these very verses as important revelations of God to us. And so we should see them that way too. And so Exodus 34, 7 says, God is Yahweh. He's forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's always confused me, right? Because who needs forgiveness but the guilty? Who needs forgiveness of wickedness, rebellion, and sin except those who are guilty? 
the idea here is that Yahweh, he is, is abounding in steadfast love, abounding in love, and forgiving by nature, but at the same time, he's committed to justice by nature. That's part of who he is as Yahweh. Yahweh's justice, his punishment, isn't about retribution or payback or some kind of God-sized vendetta. It's about his character of steadfast love and faithfulness, and therefore his healing and renewal and restoration of the world. So God's end goal is a world with no evil, no suffering, no sorrow, no pain, nor death. And so that means no hatred, no violence, no racism, no abuse, no sexual dysfunction, all the things, because the judgment and removal of all that is evil is referred to in the Bible as part of the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. Jesus talks about it a lot. God's character of justice has to be a huge part of what it means to have a true concept of God as the I am, that he's not just slow to anger and abounding in compassion and grace and love and faithfulness, but he's also committed to true and real justice. But the Bible also tells us that God's punishment is not just this day of the Lord when Jesus comes back and he's going to remove evil from the earth. He's going to remove suffering and pain and dying and death from the earth. But the Bible tells us that God's punishment is often a let it happen kind of punishment. It's not just this idea of waiting for the day of the Lord kind of thing, the day of Yahweh. But it's happening now. So when you read Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, it says the wrath of God is being revealed now in the sense that God is, it says three times in that chapter, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over to their futile reasoning, their darkened heart, and their their destructive desires. So he gives us what we want in our idolatrous desires. When we exchange worshiping the real God for worshiping smaller things, God lets us do it, and that's always bad because there's going to be a devolution of our humanity when he lets us do it. It's weird to think that God's justice is simply giving us what we want. Sounds like a country song, doesn't it? But when God gives us what we want, that's what causes, in a sense, punishment to unravel in our lives. And then Romans 1 lists all the devolution in our thinking and heart and relationships as a result. Things go from bad to worse in our own lives, and things often go from bad to worse in the human condition when God gives us over. But God's punishment is not just a let it happen kind of punishment. It's also a reap what you sow kind of thing in our lives. Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. People reap what they sow. That's what the New Testament says. Let me read it again. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. People reap what they sow. Now, this is written to Christians, and it's citing a principle tied to the very character of God. Again, we're looking at the character of the I am, the character of God. The very character of God, Paul says, is that God is not going to be mocked. Part of the character of God is that people reap what they sow. Paul says that even as believers in Christ, there is a kind of 
let it happen, reap what you sow punishment when God does not act to keep us from the evil consequences of our sin. And that is the punishment of our sin. It's simply God letting it happen, letting us reap what we sow. He allows us to reap what we have sown. The truth is, God usually doesn't have to lift a finger to punish our sin because sin is its own punishment. Pride is its own punishment because it makes us even more insecure and more needing of people's approval and more enslaved to having to have people's approval and therefore having to boast more and having to try to bring attention to ourselves more. And it's an unraveling in our relationships. Pride is its own punishment. The obsession to get rich is its own punishment because you never have enough. It always leads to anxiety about losing what you have, and you're never happy not having what you think you need, enough of what you think you need for happiness. And so the obsession, greed, the obsession to get rich is its own punishment. Adultery is eventually its own punishment. The desire for love and the desire for having intimacy and breaking our commitments and trying to get that will leave you incapable of real love. Pornography is its own punishment. We're never sexually satisfied in our relationships that we're meant for sexual satisfaction, and our brains, our very brains, are wired to fantasy instead of reality, which means that we're always going to have to feed fantasy, and it's never going to be enough. And our brain is now wired to it, wired to discontentment, and dissatisfaction. Lying becomes its own punishment because it's a loss of our true self and our truth in relationships, and that becomes its own punishment. Self-righteousness becomes its own punishment because it leads to anger and cynicism and isolation and aloneness, and your kids end up hating you for it. On and on, all the ways that sin becomes its own punishment. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright In writing his commentary on Romans 1, he says this, When God gives human beings responsibility, he means it. The choices we make are choices whose consequences God alarmingly allows us to explore. Let me read that again. The choices we make are choices whose consequences God alarmingly allows us to explore. He will warn us. He will give us opportunities to repent and change course, but... If we choose idolatry, we must expect our humanness bit by bit to dissolve. That's what punishment is. Yes, one day God will act decisively to put an end to evil forever. But in the meantime, God's punishment is often just him stepping back and let sin run us into the ground because sin is its own punishment. That's why billions of people in the world throughout history believe in that Hindu doctrine called karma. It's just been something observed. It's an observed reality of life for thousands of years. I don't mean in the Hindu sense, though, but just the the idea that people believe that you reap what you sow, that, that karma is real because it's how things seem to work. It's like what Jesus said, do not judge for you too will be judged and how you judge others. It, it always comes back as a boomerang. Sin just becomes something that becomes a judgment against us. 
just by the natural flow of how it works in our lives. In fact, the consequences of God's give us over, let it happen, sowing and reaping kind of punishment for our sins, unfortunately often falls most heavily on our children. So the last part of verse 7 says, He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So if punishment is what we've been saying, God letting the consequences happen, God letting it happen, letting us reap what we sow, giving us over to our desires, well, that affects the children more often than it does the parents. What's God saying here? He's saying, let's just use an example. If a dad and mom run a meth lab, let's just make it extreme and dramatic so we can get the point. If a dad and mom run a meth lab and are arrested by the police and land in jail, it's the children who will suffer the most. If the police never find out and mom and dad run a meth lab, it's still going to be the children who suffer the most. They'll end up usually reproducing that sin in their adult lives in some way. If there's sexual dysfunction in the parents, it's going to show up in the children. That's often why the same kind of sin runs in the family, like sort of like DNA, like the color of our eyes or the physique or our quirky personality is often passed down just by DNA. Sin is also passed down from one generation to the next because it's the consequences that happen in the life of the children when they're adults. This is true in your own life from your parents and from your grandparents. This is one of the reasons you see the Israelites confessing and repenting of the sins of their ancestors. In Daniel chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, they're literally confessing and repenting of the sins of their ancestors. Our sin always leaves behind a sowing and reaping. It always leaves behind scars in our lives and in our kids and in their kids and their kids' kids. You don't have to have faith in the Bible to see that. That's something everybody can see. It runs in families. So yes, Yahweh is forgiving, but sin is not. Yahweh is merciful, but sin is not. It's going to show up as negative consequences in our lives, in our families. But Yahweh's whole point in this entire passage is not to make us depressed and hopeless at what the locusts of our sin have devoured, but to point us to him as the I am, as he is who redeems and restores our broken lives. So it's not trying to use sin as a way to depress us. Everybody knows the way sin has ruined our lives. It's trying to give us new information. The way sin ruins our lives is not new information. The new information is that God is, well, let's just read it again. Verse 6, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. This is the new information. He's compassionate. He's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, it says, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So on the one hand, Yahweh, the I am, says, I am infinitely compassionate, infinitely gracious, infinitely abounding in love and faithfulness and forgiveness. When you think of the I am, 
the very essence, the one who inhabits eternity, the, the source of all existence, the giver of all life. He is infinite in his compassion. He is infinite in his grace. He is infinite in his love and faithfulness. And he's infinite in his forgiveness. So what does Yahweh forgive? Well, the language here is he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's a pretty extensive, exhaustive list. Pretty much the comprehensive list. And yet, see the word yet, yet I will never let sin go unpunished. Never. So you can't look at one aspect of God's character without looking at the others. But here's where I think there's hope. Remember why God is saying all this. Remember, Moses wanted to see my glory, and God says, you can't because of your sinfulness. It would kill you. But I will show you the next best thing. I will proclaim my name and show you my goodness. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So this is what God is doing in all this, showing his Name. He's showing his glory in a way that won't destroy us. He's showing us his goodness, his compassion. So Yahweh says, this is the essence of all my goodness. I'm infinitely merciful and forgiving, and I'm infinitely just toward the guilty, toward sin. And when you hear that, you say, well, this is a contradiction. But it's not. It's a tension, an important tension. God is revealing all all his goodness, not just part of it. Think about it. Why is God merciful and gracious and loving and forgiving? Well, it's because of his goodness, but also, but also why can he not let the guilty go unpunished? And it's the same answer, because of his goodness in the sense of justice. You see the tension? Without it, God wouldn't truly be all good. He wouldn't be infinitely good. But the big question is, how can Yahweh be infinitely just and punish all sin and infinitely merciful and loving and forgive all of our wickedness, rebellion, and sin? If the Bible ended here, we would never know. It would just be weird and depressing. But we have the rest of the Bible. We have the answer to that question, and it's the cross of Jesus. It's God himself taking our sin upon him self on the cross. See, if you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus, you might believe in a God who loves and forgives everybody no matter what. And that will be a distorted view of God. That's a God who is not all good. He's just loving, but he's not just. There's no justice in the end. Or you can have a God who's very just, but not merciful and loving and forgiving. He's just angry and he's a punishing God. Many of you see him as only that. But the gospel is on the cross of Jesus Christ, in the body of Jesus Christ, in the body of Yahweh himself, the I am who became human. In the face of Jesus alone, do we have an infinitely just and infinitely loving and merciful and compassionate and gracious God. The one who took the just punishment for our sins upon himself and broke through the other side of death so he can be our forever human king. And so we can have a resurrection and a reboot 
and a rebooted, resurrected world, if we turn to him, seeing the glory of the I am should humble us and sober us, give us this sense that sin is this self-destructive stupidity of idolatry. Why in the world would I embrace sin when Yahweh, the I am, is the God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness and forgiving? Because sin is an unbelief in the greater glory of God, a turning away from his abundant steadfast love and faithfulness because we don't believe it as much as we believe whatever promise that sin is giving us that makes us turn toward it in that moment. So our fight of faith is to learn to trust in the I am revealed here, to learn to trust him, to turn to him in all his goodness. Let's read it again. The I am, the I am, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Here's the thing. Bring your sin to God. Bring your sin to his graciousness, his compassion, his abounding in love and faithfulness. Bring your sin to his forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Bring it straight to Jesus on the cross. So this is not something where you're trying to pretend you're one way with God, but you you sort of have this secret sin life. You're bringing your sin to the I am. You're bringing all your sin so that he can forgive it. Don't hide it or lie about it or make excuses for it. Just bring it. Bring it right to him and let him take it to the cross. Let him absorb it on the cross. Let him break its hold over you. Let his abounding steadfast love and faithfulness bring you into his amazing story. So we say, Yahweh, you are the I am. You are compassionate. You are gracious. You are a compassionate and gracious forever God. You are forever gracious. You are forever compassionate. And I throw myself to your compassion. I bow down like Moses to the ground and I worship you. I throw myself upon your grace. I throw myself upon your compassion. I turn toward your abundant love and faithfulness. And I trust your word. I trust that you are true to your word, that you are compassionate and that you are gracious and that you are abounding in love, infinite in love, infinite in faithfulness, infinite in compassion, infinite in grace. And so I turn to you for forgiving my wickedness and my rebellion and sin. And I pray for your mercy upon me. I pray for your compassion upon my descendants, that you would have mercy on them for my sin, that you would have grace in their lives in spite of my sin, that you would heal and that you would restore me and that you would heal and restore my descendants so that my sin would not be a source of destruction in their lives. I pray that you would take my sin and put it upon Jesus on the cross and that you would give me 
his righteousness because you are slow to anger and you are abounding in love. You are abounding in truth and faithfulness. You are infinite in faithfulness. You are infinite in compassion and you are infinite in grace. You are the I am. You are the source of all healing. You are the source of all new life. You are the source of restoration. You are the source of resurrection. You are the one who absorbs my sin and you absorb my guilt into yourself. You are the I am who became human and said, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. You are the I am who became human and said, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will never hunger. Whoever comes to me will never thirst. You are the I am who became human and said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die, will live forever. You are the I am who says, I am the good shepherd. And so I want to follow you as my good shepherd. I want to follow you as the bread of life. I want to come to you as the way and the truth and the life. I want to come to you as the true vine that gives me life. I want to come to you as the I am who is infinitely gracious and infinitely compassionate and infinite in love and infinite in goodness and infinite in forgiveness and infinite in mercy and faithfulness. And I bring all my sin to you. I cast all my sin upon you. Sins that I don't even quite know I've committed, I give them to you. And as well as those sins that I know very well I have committed, I willfully did them. I willfully turned away from your glory. I willfully turned away from your love. I willfully turned away from your goodness and your faithfulness, and I turned toward sin. I committed idolatry. I worshiped something other than you. I believed a promise of something other than you because I wasn't believing your promise. And I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your compassion. I ask for your mercy. I ask that you would take that sin and put it upon the body of Jesus on the cross and that you would break through the other side of death for me and give me the resurrection of Jesus, a reboot into pure righteousness and holiness and glory so that I can look upon your glory and not be incinerated, that I can look upon your glory in a resurrected body of glory and bask in your glory and share in your glory because I am righteous with the righteousness of Christ. I am righteous with the resurrected body of Jesus and I can live in your righteousness forever and forever come to you as the I am. And the forever God is my God forever because you have done it, because you've taken away my sin. You've given me your compassion and your steadfast love and your mercy and your goodness and your faithfulness and your grace because you are the I am and there is no other. You are my Savior and there is no other. I trust in and depend upon all your goodness and your mercy and your compassion because you became human. And as Paul said, you loved me and you gave yourself for me. And so I live by faith in you, trust in you, submission to you. And I pray that you would help me be transformed from one degree of glory to the another in this life until the full resurrection 
when Jesus comes back. Help me lift my eyes and live in your glory. Live in all what it means that you are the I am. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to A Bigger Life, a podcast of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating so people can find this content more easily or consider texting it to a friend or posting it on social media. Thanks for listening.